everybody, and welcome to the third episode of Pulp Today. Today we're going to talk about James M. Cain and The Postman Always Rings Twice. Uh, I'm going to start out by making a very modest poor man's martini for myself because I am too entirely too uh, lazy to use the shaker. I'm not getting a product endorsement from... Uh, Absolute, but maybe I should. Here's to you. So, I grew up in a house with a guy who wrote mystery novels, but I was not a big mystery novel reader when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I was into science fiction. Heinlein, Bradbury, Arthur C. Clarke, all that. Uh, as I got older, I was always reading some of my dad's books, I got interested in crime fiction, and in my teens, early 20s, I started a deep dive into the classics. And I'll tell you, my first reaction was that I was mad at every lit teacher, every English teacher, because, <laughs> disagree all you like, James M. Cain, Dashiell Hammett are absolutely as good, wrote things that are as profound as Fitzgerald, Hemingway, the usual guys that you're reading in English class. Just kind of seems like they wrote about poor people instead of rich people. Mm. There's a murder in The Great Gatsby. It's a murder mystery. It's actually a couple of murders, depending on how you look at it. But it's about rich folks. James M. Cain was writing about poor people. Hammett was writing about all strata of society. Cain eventually wrote about some rich people. So that's that's the start. I think it was 1990 when I read The Postman Always Rings Twice. And here's a confession. I was in love with someone who was living with a man who she was not in love with. It was a very torrid affair. I was 25 years old. And for whatever reason, I decided at that exact moment in time to read The Postman Always Rings Twice. Disclaimer, she never asked me to murder her uh, live-in boyfriend, nor did I ever volunteer to do so. So getting that out of the way, I then sat down to read The Postman Always Rings Twice. This copy right here. I got to chapter three and it just, <laughs> it blew me away. It was so good. And chapter three is largely dialogue. The main character, Frank Chambers, has just begun his affair with his employer's wife, Cora, and they've gone out to run an errand and of course parked the car, made passionate love, and this dialogue takes place in the afterglow moment. And uh, in 1990, I was, as I said, I was 25. I was broke. The woman I was having an affair with was probably financially unable to move out on her live-in boyfriend. And obviously, as I said, this isn't the situation I was in. But the way he writes about it and the way he expresses what it feels like to have limited choices in this world and limited ways that things can go for you. And uh, I'll start with the moment where Frank has asked Cora to tell how she ended up here. This is, as I said, all dialogue going between Frank and Cora, starting with Cora. Three years ago, I won a beauty contest. I won a high school beauty contest in Des Moines. That's where I lived. The prize was a trip to Hollywood. 
I got off the chief with 15 guys taking my picture, and two weeks later I was in the hash house. Didn't you go back? I wouldn't give them the satisfaction. Did you get in movies? They gave me a test. I was all right in the face, but they talk now. The pictures, I mean. And when I began to talk up there on the screen, they knew me for what I was, and so did I. A cheap Des Moines trollop that had as much chance in pictures as a monkey has. Not as much, actually. A monkey, anyway, can make you laugh. All I did was make you sick. And then? Then two years of guys pinching your leg and leaving nickel tips and asking about how about a little party tonight. I went on some of them parties, Frank. And then? You know what I mean about them parties? I know. Then he came along. I took him, and so help me, I meant to stick by him. But I can't stand it anymore. God, do I look like a little white bird? To me, you look more like a hellcat. You know, don't you? That's one thing about you. I don't have to fool you all the time. And you're clean. You're not greasy, Frank. Do you have any idea what that means? You're not greasy. I can kind of imagine. I don't think so. No man can know what it means to a woman to have to be around somebody that's greasy and makes you sick to the stomach when he touches you. I'm not really such a hellcat, Frank. I just can't stand it anymore. What are you trying to do, kid me? Oh, all right, I'm a hellcat then, but I don't think I would be so bad with somebody that wasn't greasy. Cora, how about you and me going away? I've thought about it. I've thought about it a lot. We'll ditch the Greek and blow, just blow. Where to? Anywhere. What do we care? Anywhere. Do you know where that is? All over, anywhere we choose. No, it's not. It's the hash house. I'm not talking about the hash house. I'm talking about the road. It's fun, Cora, and nobody knows it better than I do. I know every twist and turn it's got, and I know how to work it, too. Isn't that what we want, just to be a pair of tramps like we really are? You were a fine tramp. You didn't even have socks. You liked me. I loved you. I would love you without even a shirt. I would love you especially without a shirt, so I could feel how nice and hard your shoulders are. Socking railroad detectives develop those muscles. And your heart all over big and tall and hard, and your hair is light and not a little soft, greasy guy with black, kinky hair that he puts bay rum on every night. That must be a nice smell. But it won't do, Frank. That road, it, it don't lead anywhere but to the hash house. The hash house for me and some job like it for you. A lousy parking lot job where you wear a smock. I'd cry if you saw you in a smock, Frank. Well, she sat there a long time, twisting my hand in both of hers. Frank, do you love me? Yes. Do you love me so much that not anything matters? Yes. There's one way. Did you say you weren't really a hellcat? I said it and I mean it. I'm not what you think I am, Frank. I want to work and be something, that's all. But you can't do it without love. Do you know that, Frank? Anyway, a woman can't. Well, I've made one mistake, and I've got to be a Hellcat just once to fix it. But I'm not really a Hellcat, Frank. They hang you for that. Not if you do it right. You're smart, Frank. I never fooled you for a minute. You'll think of a way. Plenty of them have. Don't worry, I'm not the first woman that had to turn Hellcat to get out of a mess. He never did anything to me. He's all right. The hell he's all right. He stinks, I tell you. He's greasy and he stinks. And do you think I'm going to let you wear a smock with service auto parts printed on the back and thank you call again while he has four suits and a dozen silk shirts? 
Isn't that business half mine? Don't I cook? Don't I cook good? Don't you do your part? You talk like it was all right. Who's going to know if it's all right or not but you and me? You and me. That's it, Frank. That's all that matters, isn't it? Not you and me in the road or anything else, but you and me. You must be a Hellcat, though. You couldn't make me feel like this if you weren't. That's what we're going to do. Kiss me, Frank, on the mouth. I kissed her. Her eyes were shining up at me like two blue stars. It was like being in church. The end of chapter three of The Postman Always Rings Twice. A woman tells the man she loves they have to murder her husband. And his last line in the, in the chapter is, it was like being in church. Uh, the way he captures the desperation of that and the idea of young lovers on the run always ending up at the hash house and you wearing a smock and I'd cry if I saw you in a smock. I always love that. And one last note about the many movies that have been made, well, many handful of movies that have been made of uh, Postman Always Rings Twice. It's the same mistake they used to make with Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet is about teenagers. Their behavior makes sense because they're teenagers. Frank Chambers is 24. Cora is even younger. Maybe they would have done the horrible things that they do if they were older people, but it takes on a completely different cast when you have Jack Nicholson, who's, I think, 43 or 44. Frank Chambers is a fool who doesn't understand the world and who gets caught up in something bigger than himself that he can't say no to. When you cast a 43-year-old man as someone like that, he's just a psychopath. Uh, and it changes it from a tragic love story to a story about just two horrible, irredeemable people. And I think that's that's not the way that story needs to be told. So no one has yet made a good movie from this. Finally, a million years ago, shortly after I had read this book, I was working at uh, Roger Corman Studios in Venice, and I was working on a film down there called Kiss Me a Killer. And a, I think I was the second unit key grip. And it had a great cast. It was Robert Beltran and uh, Julie Carmen. And about a week into shooting, I went, oh, this is the Postman Always Rings Twice. This is awesome. I don't know, I don't remember how the movie turned out, so I don't know if I can uh, recommend it, but they're two incredible movie stars and they did a great job. Anyway, that's uh, Pulp Fiction for today, a little something about James M. Cain, who inspired so many writers after him, including, I think he was my dad's biggest inspiration. Till next time, have yourself an afternoon cocktail and read some Pulp Fiction. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.